20, page 820, and we'll pray Psalm 98 together. Psalm 98 is the psalm that Isaac Watts used to write a hymn you might know called Joy to the World. Um, so Joy to the World, it's interesting how it's kind of been um, used as a Christmas hymn, which is great, um, but it you know originally was supposed to be a sort of paraphrase of Psalm 98, and in many ways really um, fits with the season of Advent. That's where it is actually in the Trinity hymnal is in the kind of Advent section because of the way that it emphasizes the Lord's coming um, uh, to redeem all things, to judge, um, to separate, um, to renew, to restore. So it's an appropriate psalm for us to say together this morning and actually we'll sing Joy to the World at the end of our service this morning also. So I'll say the first um, section um, of each uh, uh, the unbolded sections, and y'all respond with the sections in bold. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Let's pray. Father, indeed, um, we give you thanks for the way in which you have come to us in your Son, for the way in which he has promised to come again, to judge, to renew, to restore, um, to adjudicate, to make all things right. We're thankful, Father, that he is a trustworthy king and that we can put all of our hope and our faith in him, in Jesus Christ, the coming one. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, friends, let me um, get some help here. Maybe Scott and Donovan, y'all can help pass out some handouts today. put any extras back from the sound booth. And while they're doing that, I'm going to start passing out some books. There's a book for you. Y'all like one each? Yeah? You share one? Okay. James. That's for y'all. Yeah. A book for you guys. Would you like your own compact? No? Okay. You've got one. Okay. Hey, Alyssa. We've got a book for you. You've got that one. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Matt is passing out other copies of the book. Did you get one, David? There you go. Yes, that is for you to take home. 
Absolutely. All right. Yeah, put a pile back. There's also a pile in the foyer. I'm trying to get people to take take copies this morning. Um, okay, so the first thing I want to talk about today is kind of a wrap-up summary. Um, we're going to have a chance in a minute to talk through any questions or topics for discussion you may still have about the Ten Commandments. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to talk just briefly about plans for Sunday school um, when we come back in the new year. We will not have Sunday school um, next Sunday, the 26th, or the following Sunday, um, January 2nd, just as an opportunity to give us, especially the teachers, a break from um, preparing for Sunday school um, for a couple weeks during the Christmas holiday. Um, but then we'll come back on January 9th and begin sort of a new term for Sunday school, uh, both for adults and for children. And for the adult class, what I want us to do is to spend um, five or six weeks um, talking about discussing this book uh, called Gentle and Lowly. Um, it's by a man named Dane Ortland. Um, it's, you may have heard of it. It's gotten a lot of press in the last uh, year and a half or so since it came out. Um, it's probably become the closest thing to a bestseller that Crossway typically publishes, um, which is great. Um, Dane is um, an acquaintance of mine, long-term acquaintance. When Amy and I moved to Covenant Seminary in 2004, um, Dane was wrapping up his last year of seminary at Covenant um, and lived in the kind of apartment complex next to ours. So, you know, we didn't know each other well, but we interacted some and that kind of thing. Um, um, since that time, I believe, yeah, he went on and got a PhD after seminary and then went to work for Crossway, was an editor for them for um, a while. Um, he actually only got ordained as a pastor in the last year or so. Um, so he's been kind of in the academic world and then um, just in the book publishing world um, and then became an ordained minister in the PCA about a year ago um, at a church um, in Naperville, Illinois. So Dane wrote this book called Gentle and Lowly, and I think it is a, a helpful book. I think it's, it's, uh, it, I think it's worth reading. And so that's why I'm commending it to you and giving you copies. And I should also say, I should give a shout out to Crossway Publishing. Um, we did not purchase these copies, Crossway, about six months ago, I got a link from somewhere um, saying that they were giving out free copies to churches um, who would distribute them to their members and use, use the book. So, so they sent us about 100 free copies of this book. So thank you to Crossway Publishing for that. Um, so it's a, it's a great book. Um, essentially what Dane is doing is, is, is sort of a renovation of, some, of a lot of Puritan literature. Um, so what he's doing, especially the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, if you know him, he wrote a book called um, The Heart of Christ Towards Sinners. Um, so really looking at the, the heart of Jesus um, towards um, sinners, especially not only during his ministry, on, during his, his life on earth, but also his present ministry in heaven um, towards us and for us, which obviously is a huge theme we've been talking about in Hebrews um, the past several months. Um, and, and Dane really, a lot of what he, and he says this right up front, a lot of what he's doing is kind of taking uh, Puritan writers, particularly Goodwin, but also others, Richard Sibbs, um, Bunyan, um, and really trying to kind of modernize and contextualize their work for a more modern contemporary context and audience. And so um, it's a de pretty devotional book. It's definitely not, um, I mean, there are definitely some sophisticated, you know, theological, biblical things going on, but it's written, I think, you'll find in a style that's pretty accessible and, um, and helpful. So has anyone read this book already? Yeah, getting some nods. 
Okay, excellent. Well, I'm glad that you guys have seen it. We'll spend some time um, talking about it. So I'll just encourage you, take a copy. Um, we should have plenty if husbands and wives want to have their own copy. Um, and take it, spend some time just reading it, um, see what you think, and we'll get into it a little bit beginning on January 9th together as a adult Sunday school class. So that's the plan for the new year. Any questions about that? Any comments? Great. Um, so before we jump into some, I do have some stuff that I want to talk about from the Westminster Larger Catechism today, but before we do that, I really wanted to just give a, a moment um, for us to have any kind of discussion or questions or comments that you all might have. Um, we've spent now the last 10 weeks um, going through the Ten Commandments, a commandment a week. It's been a pretty um, fast clip, of course. It's, we've not been able to be totally comprehensive in any way um, as we think about all of these commandments and their implications for our lives. So I just wanted to give us a moment this morning um, to see if there are any sort of outstanding questions or um, topics for discussion that you feel like weren't covered or, you know, something that was said that you want clarification on or you want to follow up on, anything that might be kind of out there. We'll start with that. I'm going to give you a sec. Yes, ma'am. Yes, the graven image issue. What constitutes a graven image? Yeah, let's talk about that for a sec. <coughs> the Bible here. So Trudy's asking about the second commandment, um, which appears, of course, in Exodus 20. And the Lord said... You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting in the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and to keep my commandments." Um, so the question that Trudy has asked is specifically to do, how do we think about um, images of God, particularly of the second person of the Trinity, um, Jesus Christ and his incarnation? So what I would say, um, Trudy, is that certainly our um, tradition, um, the Westminster standards that we subscribe to as a church and uphold, teach that this means that any image making of the triune God, any of the three persons, is out of bounds. Um, that it is a violation of the second commandment. Um, I have a, a stated difference to that um, part of our catechism where it describes that, goes into detail on that question. Um, and my stated difference essentially is that I think that um, this commandment is really focusing on the question of worship rather than just the existence of images. Um, and so certainly I think that it would be wrong um, if we had, you know, icons of Jesus here in the sanctuary that 
somehow we were supposed to uh, genuflect before or um, adore in some way. Um, I think that would be sinful. Um, and that, that is a big distinction between the form of worship that we have and other branches of the church. I think that, that branches of the church that practice things like that are in substantial error on that question. Um, but I, my difference basically says, as long as you're not using images of Jesus for, um, for worship, then it is permissible um, for artistic reasons or even pedagogical reasons um, to make images of the second person of the Trinity um, because he was incarnate, or he is incarnate um, for that matter. Um, and there is, it, it seems very difficult to me to interact with um, the person of Jesus without having even some conception of his humanity and his appearance. Um, our appearance is a fundamental part of our humanity. Um, so that's, that's how I would answer that question. Now, I, I would say I do think that we, ha- we should be very careful. I, I don't like the way in which I think there is, we have, I appreciate, especially in my ministry, um, I, I stated that difference in 2008 when I was ordained um, and do continue to hold it. But I, I would say that I've probably moved closer to the standards in the sense that I do think we have to be we're not as careful often as I think we should be when it comes to depictions of Jesus. And so I sort of, I don't know, I, I, I just, you know, people who make sort of a, like, like you know, people make an image of Jesus and put it on a t-shirt, you know, and um, things like that, like I just wonder, like are we really, we just should be careful. Um, and sometimes I'm not sure that modern Christians are as careful as we should be about images of the second person um so so i do so i you know we own the jesus story bible for example which has images of jesus um and i don't cover those up when our kids read them or whatever um uh, and i do have images two-dimensional images which for me is a distinction um, of jesus in like my office for example um and i don't think that's sinful or wrong you know i'm not worshiping them it's an artistic thing um, but I, I do think we should be, we need to be careful, is, is my, yeah. And I, I guess I would say that I am, and th- I don't know if I have any like defense for this, but I d- would say that I am more comfortable with images of Jesus that are, that are more abstract than ones that are really trying to quote unquote be realistic and depict something um, that is, because I think that that's what I, and I've talked about this when I've taught through the Second Commandment, that I really want my imagination of the real Jesus, quote-unquote, the incarnate Jesus, to be shaped primarily and even almost exclusively by the Gospels. And by and I think it is an important thing that we should wrestle with as Christians, that God chose to reveal himself um, not in a visual, and this was a huge distinction in the ancient Near East, um, the the prohibition of of images even of god to bow down to obviously this was ubiquitous with other pagan religions at the time that they would all have images of their gods that they would bow down to so it's a very distinctive thing that the lord chose to do to not um, reveal himself to his people in that way and in fact to prohibit that form of worship of himself Um, and so and he chose to reveal himself through the written word not through some kind of visual means. And so I think, I think that those things are really important and I would encourage us. I talk, I've talked also about, I have a 
just kind of personal conviction, I don't watch movies or TV shows that depict Jesus. Um, I just think it's, for me at least, it's not beneficial. Um, I do know what you mean. Yeah, I think I shared some of those concerns for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's something we all should wrestle with. Um, how, you know, we, and this is, this is part of what we're, and, I'm, and I think it's important for you all to hear me say that, that I love the Westminster Larger Catechism. I love the Westminster Standards. And yet I also do have stated differences with my presbytery on multiple points where I think that the standards are not uh, infallible. Um, and I, that's important to, to, for you to know that the PCA permits that for office bearers in the church um, to have those stated differences. I think it's a pretty healthy system because we get to be honest about places where we deviate from the standards instead of just sort of crossing our fingers behind our back and saying that we subscribe to them, you know, um, without acknowledging the differences. And for me, that is a that is a difference. I do think that the I am definitely not as strict as the standards are in this question. Um, Matt's got his hand, and I'll come back to you, Donovan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. So Matt's asking, how do we engage with the commandments in a healthy way where we're not overly legalistic or overwhelmed by the burden of the commandments and yet also are wise in terms of... Yeah, I think that's a great question, Matt. Um, I think certainly the, the kind of thing that we're doing here is really healthy, I think, because it gives us an opportunity as a community to talk about these things and to be open about what we believe the commandments teach and where that rubs up against our lives. Um, I do, I would commend the Westminster Larger Catechism to you all. Um, I really do think that it is a remarkable document um, that is not certainly the exposition of the Ten Commandments, but just the document as a whole. Um, I really think that there is a deep pastoral value um, to the Westminster Larger Catechism um, and it was written by pastors um, for Christians to use um, to understand the scriptures and what they teach. Um, it was written in the context of the Reformation, all of those things, and they were really trying to educate and catechize um, lay people. And that, that's an important thing. It's a resource that's given to us. Um, so I think I would encourage that. I'd, I'd, of course, you, 
part of it depends on knowing yourself, I think. I think there are some of us who, this is just my pastoral observation, who have a predilection towards um, being very tenderhearted and um, easily being overwhelmed with guilt when we think about our sin. And so I do think there's some, there's some wisdom for us. Um, some of us can have, to, can really pour into the commandments and really try to understand all of the ins and outs um, without being that feeling like an existential crisis for us. And, and I think that really is where we, sh- where we want to go generally as Christians, is to be able to, to look honestly at our lives, to be able to speak honestly about our sin without being swallowed up by guilt and shame um, and being overwhelmed by it. Um, but I do think there is a, there should be, as a pastor, certainly I want to go to wherever people are and say, you know, if, if, if studying the Ten Commandments just leads you into the spiral of um, guilt and shame and being overwhelmed by your sin such that you're paralyzed, that's not really productive or what God wants for you. And so maybe we should work a little bit more on the kind of, you know, the way, the grace of Jesus Christ and the way that you are accepted in him and, um, and, and, and continue to work on that foundation before we, you know, kind of come back to the law and do this really deep um, study. Because I, I do think the law primarily is, this is the primary reason, and I may not have stated this clearly enough in our time, I really think that Calvin is right, that the primary reason of the law is not to convict us, convict us of our sin, um, but it's to teach us what it means to live righteously. Um, and and that, that, but that requires us to really have grappled fully with our identity in Christ, our union with Jesus, the righteousness that we receive from him. Um, and when those things are fully sort of sink down into our bones and begin to um, shape our just intuitive disposition towards God. Um, where it's not just what we believe intellectually, but it's the way that our heart responds to Jesus, um, then I think that, uh, that frees us to come to the law um, and to really see it as, as it is, which is a guide to holiness and something that we can love, like the psalmist talks about. Um, and so I, I, do think, I do think part of it is knowing ourselves and knowing in some sense whether we're ready to do that in a, in a, in a mature way, you know? Um, because I do think we can go to the law in a way where we're not, um, where all, all the law is doing when we study it is condemning us. And that's not what God intends for us. Um, that certainly understanding our guilt and sin is one of the things that the law does, but I would argue that it's not, especially for the believer, its primary function. Um, does that help at all? Yeah. Let me go to Donovan and I'll come to you, James. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Donovan's asking about. Um, different ethnic depictions of Jesus, um, you know, the Northern European Jesus, um, or, I mean, we could fill in the blank. Um, 
Sure. I think here's what I would say about that. I those things. Again, all the caveats I said earlier about just depictions of Jesus that purport to be realistic in some way, I think we do need to be careful about. But I do think it's interesting. You can see this culturally as the gospel has gone forward in the world, um, that every culture that it has inhabited has created art that depicts Jesus as being um, Northern European or Asian or African or um, and we know, of course, that Jesus was Middle Eastern, um, that he was Jewish, um, these kinds of things. But it is fascinating to me, you know, that, that different cultures have, and I, I think there's something that's not, again, all the caveats I said earlier. Um, I understand that impulse to say that Jesus looks like me. Jesus, you know, there's a sort of identification with the way that I uh you know, the, the kind of person that I am in terms of my physical appearance. So I, I, I would say that I, I guess I have, I'm not advocating necessarily we go around and, you know, make the blonde, long blonde hair of Jesus or whatever. Um, but I, I guess I would say that I have sympathy for that impulse. And I think it is interesting that it does, it does seem to me just anecdotally to take place in many different cultures. It's certainly not just um, Northern European people that, that, have done that with Jesus. Um, other cultures have as well. And um, all the caveats I said earlier about some of the dangers of that, but I do understand, I guess, the impulse. Um, yeah. But yes, clearly, Jesus was Jewish. Um, he didn't look like me, just to be clear. I'm not Jewish. Um, um, so that that is important for us to think about. Yeah. Yeah, Scott. Or James, sorry, I skipped you, James. Go ahead, Scott. I'll come back to you. Yeah. That, that is funny. It has been happening forever. I think that's exactly true. And this is one of the distinctions about the Christian faith that we, that touches on this, that um, other religions, um, you know, if you're going to be uh, a serious Jew, um, you learn Hebrew, right? Because that's the language of the scriptures. If you're going to be a serious Muslim, um, you have to learn Arabic so you can read the Quran. Um, Christianity is the only religion that has really gone and said, you know, we can take these documents and translate them into the vernacular of the people and that that's actually a good thing to do. Um, and it is connected to the incarnation and the way in which God comes to be with us and in an intelligible way um, that is a, one of the most distinctive things about Christianity when we think about world religions. Um, and so anyway, again, I just, all the caveats about visual depictions of Jesus, but it is, it's something, this is something that Christians have been doing for a long time and it's not there are dangers, right? Scott just pointed, I think, to one of the dangers. Um, Jesus was not a berserker um, Viking chieftain, um, but um, but I think I think I understand I understand the impulse in some ways as well. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, briefly, it had about two weeks and we cut off. Yeah, that's right. Yep. I love that, James. That's great. I'm glad that phrase has took hold. I'm pretty sure that was me because that was a phrase that was drilled into my mind um, in seminary. I had a professor, Michael Williams, who actually wrote a great book on the covenants and the law um, uh, that I would recommend to you. But that was one of his big phrases in seminary was just again and again, Exodus comes before Sinai. And that order matters. It matters that the Ten Commandments begin um, not with commandments but with a declaration i am the lord your god who brought you out of the house of slavery out of the house of egypt um, that that it begins with god's redeeming work of israel and all of that has taken place god has um, before the ten commandments come god has invaded history and time and space to deliver israel from their captivity to give them new life when they were helpless and trapped and unable to protect themselves. And none of that was predicated on their um, having kept the law. Um, God did that first, and then he gave them the law. And the law was really truly given to them as a gift. Um, that's how it's spoken about. This is why reading the Pentateuch is so important. I know it's tempting to skip over, you know, once you get to about Exodus, you know, 21 or something, um, to just jump to Joshua or whatever. But um, it really is important because of the way in which Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers all speak about the law. And that, that's really the point of Deuteronomy in many ways. It's Moses' sermon to Israel saying, do you know how lucky you are, right? Do you know how lucky you are as a people, not just because God has given, about to give you this promised land, but because God has given you his law so that you'd be different, so that you would know sh shalom and peace, so that other nations would watch the way that you live and want to know about it and want to imitate it. It's a remarkable thing. Um, and, you know, you, and you look at the times, I mean, it's never been, it's never been anywhere near perfect. Men are sinners. Um, but, but man, what a blessing for those people who have had opportunities to live in cultures where God's law really was upheld and honored and sought to be put into practice. It really is a blessing. Um, and I think that be grateful for and not, you know what I mean? So yeah, anyway, just echoing what you said. Did somebody else have their hand up? Yeah, Katina.
With your behavior, you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. I love that. Yeah, so Kathina is talking about the way in which God's law um, calls us to things. That what is it? What is what is the law calling me to do? Rather than looking at my behavior and trying to figure out if I'm doing anything that is being prohibited by the law. And I think that that is a, a real shift, Kathina, and one that is um, is evidence of maturity um, when we start to think about God's law in that way. And I think this is one of the genius moves of the Westminster Larger Catechism, right? Um, because for each commandment, they start with what does this commandment require, not what does this commandment prohibit. And, and if you read those expositions for each of the commandments, it is fascinating to think about, oh, well, this commandment does not just keep me from doing things, but it positively calls me to, to obedience in particular ways. And I think that was a, a, a really wise theological, but also pastoral move um, for the, the men who wrote the Westminster Standards. Yeah, James. Right. Sure. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the sense of omission versus commission. I remember this story that I heard, um, like, um, long like probably almost 20 years ago when I was in college um, about W.H. Auden who was a believing um, poet a complicated man um, certainly not um, completely holy or mature but um, he does seem to have you know faith in Christ and um, so Auden is this Christian poet um, and he told the story apparently about how he wondered if one day when he was in heaven, if the Lord wouldn't show him a book and he would say, well, what's in that book? And the Lord would say, these are all the things that you might have written if you had been good. Um, and I, I mean, it, it, I don't know, it's just kind of stuck with me, right? Um, I mean, in some ways there's something really sad about that. Um, but I think, it, I think it, it does sort of point towards, you know, 
yes, that the law is not only trying to keep us from doing things, it's calling us to something. Um, it's calling us to a fully, a f- there's a fullness available to us in the Christian life. Um, and this is why, and we see this, and I think this is one of the things deeply as a pastor that I just want you all to wrestle with and think about, which is what kind of life, assuming the Lord gives you, you know, 80 or 90 years, um, what kind of life is it that you want to look back on? What kind of influence do you want to have? Um, Because every day of our lives, we're making progress towards something. Um, And there really are people who have more influence for the kingdom than others. It was just, it's just reality. We're not going to have time to talk about it today, but one of the things we're going to talk about today, if we had time, was how the standards say that some sins are more heinous than others, right? Not all sins are the same. Um, but in the same way, not every person has the same kind of impact for the kingdom. Not every Christian. That's just like, yes, we're all saved by grace through faith alone. None of us bring anything to the table in terms of our salvation. But if you read the scriptures, if you read Christian history, um, if you even just think about your own life and the people that you know, there are some people who, who don't use well what they've been entrusted with. Um, and at the end of your life, it's, you're, you're not, it's just not going to matter how much money you made. Like, it's just not, you know? It's not going to matter how many awards you won for whatever your thing is that you're proud of. It's not going to matter um, possessions that you have. I mean, none, like the question that I think that I see when I see people dying with grace and dignity and wisdom is they've invested in things that matter um, in loving the ones who are around them in pursuing holiness and sacrificing um, for their neighbor and clinging to Jesus. And I just, I just want us to continue, like continually to have that idea, like to wrestle with that, you know, Um, because so much in our culture pushes against that and tells us that what's important are things that are not really that important. Um, Anyway, just what you, I can't remember who said what they said, but that provoked that for me. So there you go. Something to think about. And the law of God is such a help to us in that end. Um, it really is. It really is. If we, if we could be a church that speaks about the law of God the way that the Psalms speak of the law of God, I mean, that would be maturity and wisdom. Anything else? We're about to have the kids come in here in a minute to sing for us. Yeah, Mike. It is. 
It is, as Hebrews 11 tells us. We're almost there in our exposition of the, yep. God rewards those who diligently seek him. That is, that is necessary to believe that in order to have faith, the apostle says, yep. That's right, I totally agree. Yeah, unfortunately, Joe Osteen has co-opted the, the title, the phrase, your best life now, right? Um, there's probably no coming back from that in terms of, um, you know, until about 50 years have passed maybe or something and Joe Osteen has forgotten. Um, but, it really is like that's what the law is it's your best life now you know and i mean something different than that than joel osteen does um but that is the promise of the scriptures um that 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 seeking um in good faith by the help of the spirit to obey and treasure and follow the law of god is your best life now it really is so and of course that will require redefining some of those terms but it truly is. All right, let's, um, I think the kids are coming this way. So we're gonna have some children um, singing for us in a moment. So don't go anywhere. I want you to hear this. Let me see what's going on here. 